Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. We lost our humanity, we lost our dignity, we got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. My name's Ed Butler and today we're going to be lifting the lid on some shockingly bad figures coming out of Israel, a 20% slump in the country's GDP as a result of the conflict in Gaza. Much worse than feared. But what will it actually change, if anything? Also in the show, the latest surging protests over spiralling inflation in Nigeria and a billionaire tells us about his passion for collecting sneakers and why he's selling them off for charity. The first two lots of 100, I think I spent around a million and a half dollars. Yep, and we're going to find out the other numbers later in the show. Houthi fighters in Yemen say they have struck and badly damaged two ships in the Gulf of Aden on Monday, the British-owned Rubimar, which was carrying cargo from the United Arab Emirates to Bulgaria, was hit by several missiles, allegedly. It's in danger of sinking, we understand, although crew members have already been evacuated. Another dry bulk carrier, the Sea Champion, has faced two missile attacks. It all underlines the Houthis' continuing threat to shipping across the Red Sea. The strikes came hours after the U.S. Central Military Command said it had identified a submarine drone among the Houthis' military arsenal. That's for the very first time. Well, EU foreign ministers who've been meeting in Brussels on Monday have approved a mission to help protect international shipping. It will involve four ships being sent from France, Germany, Italy and Belgium. Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, said the attacks by the Houthis could not be allowed to continue. We've seen that the entire global economy is being affected by the Houthi attacks on civilian maritime shipping. It's not just European ships that are repeatedly jeopardised by the Houthi missiles in the Red Sea, but the entire international shipping industry, ships from Asia, ships from Africa. And it also affects the Gulf states in particular, because their harbours can no longer be used. That is why it is important for us as the European Union to make a contribution to the protection of civilian shipping in the Red Sea with the Aspides mission, which we are finalising here today. The words there of the German Foreign Minister. Well, this is all happening exactly three months after the first Houthi attack on commercial shipping which the group launched in response to Israel's military offensive in Gaza. Since then, the rebel group has attempted 30 other attacks of various kinds against ships, and the US and UK have responded with airstrikes on targets in Yemen. It's caused massive disruption to shipping in the Red Sea, and 
to supply chains worldwide. Our reporter Gideon Long has been looking at looking at how this major headache for shipping firms has evolved. November the 19th last year, and Houthi fighters land a helicopter on the Galaxy Leader, a car carrier in the Red Sea. <laughs> The gunmen enter the bridge and order the crew to lie down. They take control of the ship and steer it to the Yemeni port of Hodeida. More Houthi attacks followed, and the US and its allies responded by setting up a task force to safeguard shipping. And then, on January the 12th... Live from London, this is BBC News. U.S. and U.K. forces launch airstrikes against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen in retaliation to attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. And yet still, the Houthi attacks have continued, including on ships with no discernible connection to Israel. The disruption has been massive. Michelle Wieser-Bockmann is principal analyst at Lloyd's List Intelligence in London. If you look at the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, that's the narrow choke point from the Gulf of Aden that leads into the Red Sea and then through to the Suez Canal. Before the Houthis began attacking vessels in the area, you had 500 plus vessels going through that area. And that's dropped now by about roughly 60%. Container ships, for example, the decline has been at about an 80% decline. So it depends on, on the vessel type and the destination and the origin of the cargo. That's forced ships to take the much longer and more expensive route around the bottom of Africa instead, creating a real headache for companies worldwide. Supreme Creations is a firm that makes reusable fabric bags in India and exports them around the world. Its chief executive is Smruti Shriram. About 90% of our sea shipments that have been leaving Chennai in the past three months have been affected by the Red Sea attacks. It's not been an easy situation The demand for trying to get things out of India has increased by about 80% via sea freight. So the costs are astronomical. So how long might this go on for? After all, the conflict in Gaza rumbles on. The Houthis have vowed to continue their attacks. The US warns of further reprisals. Shipping companies seem to be adjusting their timelines. Michelle Wieser-Bockmann from Lloyd's List Intelligence again. For the first time, we're seeing shipping executives start to look at what things will look like in six months' time. And that's just something that has evolved in the last couple of weeks as the realisation is arriving that despite the US and UK military strikes, this isn't really having the deterrent that governments hoped. So we're beginning to see the beginning of trading patterns changing. Ryan Peterson is the CEO of Flexport, a supply chain technology company in the United States. We've now accepted this as the new status quo and the new normal, that the container ships are going to go around. The vast majority, close to 90 percent, are not taking the risk of going through the Red Sea. There's nothing on the horizon to give us an indication that that's going to change. So my working assumption and model that we're, we're building off of is that the ships will continue to go around until further notice. And are we talking weeks, months, years? I think years is not off the table at all. Ryan Peterson of Flexport, a supply chain technology company, ending that report by Gideon Long. You can hear more from Gideon 
on that story in today's edition of Business Daily. Now, he mentioned the Galaxy leader attack at the start of that report. A little earlier, I spoke to Guy Platten. He's the head of the International Chamber of Shipping. He's just published an open letter, along with other leading figures across the shipping world, calling for the release of the 25 crew members of the Galaxy leadership, who, after three months, are still being held hostage in Yemen. It's three months since 25 um, innocent seafarers were seized by military forces and uh, are being kept away from their families. So we, you know, as an industry, we absolutely condemn that when we want those um, seafarers reunited with their families. That's really our call uh, as a united industry. You know, these people are going about their, their business, you know, delivering the vital goods and services that we need around the world. And um, to be taken away from your families like that is unacceptable. So, you know, it, we're absolutely adamant that they, they need to be released. Well, impressive, the list um, of different associations from the Bahamas to East Asia to BIMCO to so many of the other uh, major shipping organisations. But let's be honest, the Houthis, they have taken these seafarers as a political statement about the war in Gaza. Um, you can't reach them by making sending letters like this, can you? No, but you, I think you can reach everybody by, by, by making it quite plain that um, as an industry, it's unacceptable. So um, they're innocent victims. So, so where else do we do it? But raise it in through the media, uh, make sure that they're not forgotten, to make sure the families know we're not forgetting them as an industry. I think it's really, really important. Um, so, yes, and I think there is uh, pressure that can be brought on by other players to try and uh, secure their release. So, you know, we'll do everything in our power to do so. But I think the fact is that these are 25 people who are are civilians and they need to be returned to their families. And this is being published uh, on the same day that the Houthis themselves have mounted one of their most damaging attacks yet on the commercial shipping in the region. Two ships, we understand, hit in the last 24 hours by Houthi missiles or drones. Absolutely. It just gives highlights of the whole perilous state of it. You know, we um, have made it very clear that um, the right of innocent passage, the right of free navigation is a, is a fundamental right of, of world trade that we've got uh, seafarers. And, and that's where we, we really focus on. It's the seafarers who are running this risk all the time. I mean, we, we, we publish specific guidance to help mitigate the risk. We know that many shipping companies have now rerouted their ships around the Cape of Good Hope as well. But it, it's, uh, it's unacceptable, really, this uh, attacks on uh, seafarers it's not the, the ships are a byproduct of that but it's the seafarers who are actually taking on this risk and you know and i think three months after the galaxy leader was taken you know those 25 seafarers are still being held against their will as mentioned this is the toughest attack yet um how many of those shipping companies i mean what proportion of 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 the former traffic is now being rerouted looking at the the, the statistics it's uh just about 50 percent of traffic is now rerouted. So that's 50, the, the traffic going through the Suez Canal is about 50% down. I mean, every company has to take a risk-based approach to this. They take all the guidance we have in. And there's, of course, we welcome uh, things like the Operation Prosperity Guardian. We welcome the announcement of the uh, formation today of the EU force as well down there in the old defensive force. So all these things help with the risk mitigation. But nonetheless, I think it's important to highlight the very real risks our seafarers take, not just here, but elsewhere in security situations around the world, and that we depend on our ships and our seafarers for uh, the vital goods we all need on a day-to-day basis. We do, but, I mean, it was a major coalition, it felt like, didn't it, when the British and US 
um, naval forces aligned to say, look, we're going to attack Houthi positions on the mainland and stop these attacks. It simply hasn't worked. The Houthis are are now saying they're going to carry on until Gaza, the Gaza offensive ends. And we don't know when that will be. No, we don't. And uh, but all we can do is welcome the fact that the, um, the these coalitions and, and the, the, the new force announced today by the EU, it all at least points to help protect the shipping that is passing through the region. But, you know, I make the point again that uh, civilian merchant ships have a right of freedom of navigation. They're not part of this dispute. They're not part of this conflict. And they should be allowed to have their, their to exercise those rights, really, and, and to, to make sure that the, the trade does flow. How much has global shipping trade been hurt by this? Shipping is a very resilient industry. You know, the fact is there was an alternative route round the Cape of Good Hope for ships transiting from Asia to Europe. So, you know, trade is slowed, but it's not stopped. Um, and there's delays and inevitably the big consequences on price increases and inflation as, as, as time goes on. But ultimately, trade will still flow. Our job is to, to, to make sure people realise that these aren't just statistics. There are also people involved here. Guy Platten, the head of the International Chamber of Shipping. Well, staying in the region and official figures from Israel are out today showing that its economy has taken a much bigger hit than anyone expected as a result of the conflict in Gaza. GDP in the final quarter of last year plunged by almost a fifth compared to the previous three months, driven by a drop in consumer spending and troop mobilisation, among other things. I spoke earlier to Avi Eckstein. He's an economist and a former deputy governor of Israel's central bank. He told me about the reasons for the latest slowdown. Almost uh, 250,000 Israelis were on duty, and also about uh, 300,000 were evacuating their homes. Mothers stayed with their children, and uh, there was time that the schools were not fully operating over the country. And so overall, uh, reduction in GDP was 20%, which is sort of a shock. Yeah, as you say, consumers have been staying home and haven't been spending in the way that they would normally. And of course, the reservists have been called up. Have many companies really had to effectively shut down because of lack of lack of experienced staff? Oh, huge shutdown. Basically, companies reduce their activity 25 to 35 percent. You know, restaurants were closed and the population evacuated. But the concerts are back in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. So basically, a lot of activities went down, but not as large as the COVID impact in England or in Israel. I also noticed hundreds of thousands of Palestinian migrant workers who would often come in the construction sector and in agriculture. They can't come into Israel anymore. I mean, that would also presumably affect the GDP. That affects temporarily the building sector. It went down initially almost 50%. Now it uh, functions about 20% because some of the Palestinians are coming back to work in a small fraction. I mean, they used to be... 150,000 coming now, it's about uh, 30,000 coming. Also, tourism is completely out of question now. There is almost no tourism uh, coming in. So all those together uh, generate a reduction in GDP. GDP will grow only by 1% over all the year. In actually an optimistic outcome of the military conflict. Moody, the ratings agency, has lowered Israel's sovereign rating from A1 to A2 because of concerns about the war. This has triggered a fair amount of anger, I think, among some Israeli politicians. What's your response to that decision? 
Well, I think uh, Moody were quite tough in their uh, evaluation. They emphasized not only the reduction in the economic activity, but also basically the overlook uh, in the future, both the uncertainty of getting back the security. Another thing that they criticize is the political instability in Israel causing by the existing government. And they also criticize the fact that the government activities in terms of the budget of uh, 23 and especially 24 was not uh, forming a full policy response to the change in the, the budget, especially the increase in the defense expenditures, etc. Prime Minister Netanyahu says the country will bounce back and indeed the ratings will bounce back the moment we win the war and we're going to win the war. That's what he says. I mean, do you expect this is a temporary blip? You sound quite relaxed about the future for Israel's economy. That depends very much how the war would end it. If the war would end it with a huge stability, with going back to kind of the same uh, relationship that we should have uh, with uh, Palestinians and all the Arab countries around us and uh, Lebanon, etc. And also uh, going back to the high-tech sector, to where it used to be. Those are the most important aspects that will make the economy to grow back. Uh, the high-tech sector in Israel is 18% of GDP. The war disturbed substantially in addition the the global crisis in uh, high-tech. And uh, that's the main uncertainty. And uh, therefore, it very much depends how the war would end it, what would be the political solution in the north and in the south, and what would be the internal conflict in Israel. Those are the key aspects. And unfortunately, the prime minister has not been doing enough to make sure that we will get back to full stability on the political, defense, and economic growth path that we have been in the past. Professor Avi Eckstein of Tel Aviv University. When you see Iran close up, you realize just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story, smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again. The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Here on World Business Report from the BBC World Service. The Nigerian currency, the Naira, has fallen to new record lows against the US dollar today. The Nigerian stock market has also posted its biggest one-day fall in more than a year. The economic turmoil there is triggering protests all around the country. The latest in the southern city of Ibadan on Monday, where the rising cost of living has been generating some pretty strong feelings. We are hungry. This hunger is too much. And we cannot stay. We cannot do prostitute. I'm a, poor, I'm a student. There is no food. We don't have money. We can't call house. This hunger is too much. And it's not like this before. Look at us. Now there is nothing. We are starving. It's like war if we want to buy fuel. It's a lot of trouble to buy rice. Things are too expensive. Motorbikes prices are too high. We graduated from school and could not get jobs. Yet they are making things difficult for us. Do they want to kill us? The pain is too much. They should tell him. If he cannot solve our issues, he should vacate the office. It is enough. The suffering is enough. There is too much hunger. We can't pay our children's school fees. We can't pay our rent. 
please help us tell him it's difficult to eat. His tenure is too hard, too hard. If he cannot make things easier, he should vacate the office of the president. What is it? Do you want to kill us? Are you the first to govern? We can't go to school. What is it? We can't pay our transport fares. We are hungry. We are angry. Protesters there on the streets of Ibadan. Well, the collapse in the currency has come after the government abandoned its currency controls and has cut fuel subsidies. Uh, The move was meant to balance the budget and to attract new investment. The measures have been defended by one economist at least, Shakil Rudin Taiwo. He's an economist with the Nigerian Economic Summit Group in Lagos. So the government is looking at having a private sector-led economy an economy where local capital actually unlocked for development, an economy that is able to attract the needed capital to actually spur development and infrastructure, industrial development, among others. So, and it is clear from the sentiment of the private sector and foreign investor that if this control persists, these funds might not come in as expected. Subsidies that are in electricity, energy sector so this investor might not come in so the government is looking at it from this perspective the initial shock of these um, reforms adversely actually affected the people and the people also expressed their sentiments however it has been positive for the government in terms of increasing total accruable revenue government accounts but for the businesses and and the household that's actually resulted in cost of doing business and cost of living for the people. Yeah, well, it certainly has. Things like meat, eggs, milk. Many Nigerians are just having to go without right now, aren't they? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so, so the, the strategy that says you either take two meals in order to survive. <laughs> it is just like the opportunity cost of resistance now is to actually foregone nutritional meals. That's the, actually the, the state's in Nigeria at the moment. Yeah, which is no laughing matter for many regular citizens. I mean, how much longer are they going to have to put up with this? Do you think this these reforms are showing any sign that they are attracting more investment, that they are going to restore the credibility of the Nigerian economy? Yes, I would say yes. And this is actually confirmed by the Q4 capital importation reports that was just released by the MBS. And you could see a spike in terms of growth. So it's 1.1 billion capital inflow, 1.1 billion. Dollars. In Q4, dollars, yes, in Q4 of 2023. So and this is 66.3% increase compared to Q3 of the same year which shows that the foreign investor, local investor are responding positively and we just tend to which people would be able to actually endure or businesses will be able to endure some of this increase in cost of production in Nigeria. Right, but that's going to be months, not weeks, right? When is that going to normalize? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So in the short term, Nigeria will still have to deal with higher cost of imported goods. But we actually understand the government is taking a lot of initiatives to actually cushion some of this effect. A hopeful take there from the Nigerian economist Shakil Rudin Taiwo. Now to our regular markets guest, uh, Peter Jankowskis. He joins us from uh, Arbor Financial Services. Hi, Peter. Wall Street closed today for a national holiday, but business 
Business as ever carries on. Washington has been warning Beijing over uh, what it suspects could be Chinese dumping on the way. Well, certainly, uh, you know, they're going to be looking for any way they can to to boost their economy. And, you know, the traditional method for them is to to push exports. Um, you know, at the other side, you know, they're hopeful that uh, maybe they'll have some way to increase domestic consumption, but uh, does not look like that at the moment. Yeah. What on earth would Washington do, though? I mean, there's already a trade war between Washington and Beijing, isn't there? I I think it's more of a concern that uh, we're seeing steps backward in that. They have been making some strides to to try to improve that relationship, but it looks like there, there may be some retrenchment there. Okay, and the EU Commission is set to fine Apple. Yes, uh, looks like a a 500 million uh, euro fine uh, for anti-competitive behavior related to the uh, Apple uh, music uh, situation and Mm. and their app store. Uh, That's a long running dispute with Spotify. Uh, It'll be interesting to see, you know, how that plays out longer term, as I'm sure it'll be appealed. Peter Jankowskis, thank you. Now let's talk trainers and how buying and selling rare footwear can lead to big returns for canny investors. One of those is the Canadian financier Miles Nadal. Over several years, he's amassed a collection of nearly 1,000 pairs of sought-after sneakers. He's also uh, been collecting cars along the way, but he's now planning to sell the entire lot, which could bring in a total of $62 million, he reckons, at an auction this summer. So how and why does someone become such a connoisseur of fancy footwear? Miles Nadell spoke to me from his Palm Beach home in Florida a little earlier. The first two lots of 100, I think I spent around a million and a half dollars. And Then I hired a curator, and his job was to go around the world and spend my money and build the most iconic sneaker collection in the world. Where where, where uh, did you put them? The museum is in Toronto. It's an integrated museum of both cars and sneakers. It's taken you five years or so to build up to this full collection of them, and now you're selling them all again. It was always my plan from day one to donate it to my foundation, which I did, and upon my passing... I would donate it. When I turned 65, I said, why do I have to wait to die to benefit those less fortunate? I'm thrilled about the opportunity to now monetize the values and enhance our foundation and more aggressively try to make the world modestly a better place to help those less fortunate. Have the shoes gained in value since you bought them? I think a lot of things have gone up in value and some things are flat and some things probably have gone down in value. I bought a lot during COVID, but we have things that are quite unique. So selflessly, I hope it's gone up a lot in value so that we can make a more dynastic contribution to society. Meanwhile, you're also selling off, what, $60 million worth of car. I hope at least, yes. The cars have been a labor of love. But when you have 175 vehicles, it becomes a labor of labor. And now I don't drive 90% of them. So I'm keeping about 22 automobiles and I'm auctioning off the rest of them. You're excited, but there must be a tinge of sadness. I mean, you sound like an enthusiastic collector, waving goodbye to all of these shoes and cars. There are certain cars that I have a great emotional attachment to. But I came to the conclusion that if I don't use them, why am I keeping them? For instance, I have the 1955 Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing. It was a labor of love to create. It's identical to Ralph Lauren's. I didn't drive it in the last two years. I have the Aston. 
1965 Aston Martin DB5, the James Bond car. Haven't driven that in three years. If you're not driving these things, it's really a, a waste. So I guess I never have a shortage of things that interest me, and I will always continue to do so. But I'm excited that all of the efforts we put forth will be in a position to transfer to other passionate collectors who I think will enjoy it for many years in the future. The fond thoughts there of the multi-millionaire collector Miles Nadal and his auction selling off all of those vintage cars and vintage footwear will be taking place on June the 1st at Sotheby's in the United States. Well, that's just about it for this edition of World Business Report. I hope you enjoyed it from me, Ed Butler, and the rest of the team. Thanks very much for listening. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Musik